Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Man, again, I just want to tell you thank you so much for all of you who volunteer for sports camp. Man, we had over 90 volunteers, man, and you guys just absolutely crushed it. Thank you again, Um, Sarah. Thanks for your leadership. Uh, Just appreciate the team. We give God the praise. And then um, I want to remind you that a couple of weeks ago, I asked you to give. We had a few uh, thousand dollars left to raise the funds for our mission trip. And after that Sunday, we left and we had everything that we needed. And so I just want to say thank you to the church. Thank you for giving so that we can go and fulfill the Great Commission and help others give them an opportunity to believe in the life-changing gospel. What I want to do today, man, is something that's, I don't know, if you've been, if I've been your pastor long enough, you'll know that the Lord never lets me preach anything that he doesn't first do in me. And so when the Lord laid this idea for this message on my heart, again, I said, oh no, God, do we really need to go here? Um, But yeah, he did. And so I want to tell you just from Jump Street that this message is probably one of the most personal messages I've ever preached to you since I have been your pastor. Nevertheless, let's jump into it. If you're ready, I'm ready. Y'all ready? Okay, we're going to do this. All right, here we go. Good. Y'all ready? I, I trained you well. Here we go. Um, man, if you're into blues music, which I don't know if any of you are, you would know the name Ethel Waters. Uh, she was pretty amazing, and, and one of the reasons she could sing the blues so well is simply because she lived the blues so well. She grew up in very, and I use this word cautiously, but traumatic circumstances. She grew up really not knowing her father. As a matter of fact, it was rumored that Ethel was the victim of, of a rape. The family that she did know would later admit that they never, ever even hugged her, that they never spoke the words, I love you, to her. Yet the thing that plagued Ethel was is that she went to church with this family every Sunday and watched them vow their love and worship and honor to a God, but yet would go home and never love her. So she was very confused. Around 1908, that would have made her, around the age of 12, her family and her church forced her into an arranged marriage. One year later, Ethel tapped out of both the church and her family. If I could summarize Ethel's experience in one word, it would be this, disappointment. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic of disappointment and what to do, listen, When you are disappointed with God. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. For those of you who've been following the Bible, that comes right after Exodus 31. Just just throwing that out there. Before Exodus 33 too. That's good. That's how I have to do it. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be reading through some things this morning, but I only want you to stand for the reading of one verse, because this, again, is God speaking. So, Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, would you rise as we hear the Word of the Lord? 
The Bible says, now when the people of God saw that Moses, now say that word with me, delayed. Say it again, delayed. Get get what's happening here. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us But as for this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You may be seated. We're going to kind of unpack the basically 14 verses here. And I'll probably do so in a way that you've probably never, ever anticipated. I think the key to this whole passage centers around one word. I think it's the word delayed. When the people saw that Moses delayed, see, as my study of this word has shown me, I think that their hearts were filled with what I'm calling disappointment. Here's the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God, and for 400 years they've been enslaved to Egypt, but yet now it seems as if God was nowhere until we get into the book of Exodus chapter 3 and 4. And there God shows up, and he shows up to an 80-year-old man by the name of Moses, and he does so through a bush that's burning but not yet being consumed. And God says, Moses, I want you to understand that I've not been oblivious to my people's plight. I'm well aware of what they've been going through. I've heard their groans and their cries. I've seen and I know, and Moses, I'm coming down, and I'm going to do something about it. But Moses, I have an assignment for you. Moses, I need you to go down to Pharaoh, and I need you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, Moses, Moses does that. In the next several chapters in Exodus, we find a stunning course of events where God unleashes ten miracles, ten plagues. And then God does the unimaginable. He parts the Red Sea so that the people of God could walk through it on dry ground and make their exodus out of bondage. But yet here they are. They're walking through and they're in a place now that they've never been before. They're following God. They're, they're being obedient to God. They're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a wilderness. And when we get to Exodus chapter 32, their leader and their God are nowhere to be found. They've been gone for 40 days. Can't you just sense the confusion in their hearts? I've taught you to do this, but but just follow me for a moment. It is absolutely, hear me well. It is absolutely critical that you read your Bible in its literal, historical, grammatical, and theological context. You have to do that. But it is also necessary that you read your Bible in its relational and emotional context. Because, I mean, here you are in the middle of nowhere, and God is nowhere, and Moses is nowhere, and you don't know what is going on. And they are disappointed that nobody has showed up. And they don't know how much longer it's going to be before God or Moses shows up. I wonder this morning, have you ever been there? You ever been in a season in your life where it feels like God and everyone else has just went on sabbatical? What I'm talking about this morning is disappointment. 
Have you ever found yourself, and let's be honest, let's not be those Christians who make everybody feel like we're super spiritual. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Here's the first thing I want to show you because I have to explain to you what I mean by disappointment. The first thing is is that disappointment happens when my hopes and expectations are not aligned with my real-time experiences. It's when my hopes and expectations are not in line with my my real-time experiences. Disappointment simply means, in other words, that what I'm expecting over here and what I'm experiencing over here The gap in between what I'm expecting and what I'm experiencing, that's what I'm calling disappointment. See, ever been there with God? You're expecting God to do one thing. But your experience over here is far different. And you're living in this valley called disappointment. You ever been there? So that raises a question, right? The question then becomes, exactly what is it that I'm expecting from God? As I've been walking through an incredible season of disappointment, I've had some time to think about the scriptures and human experience, and I've had to really take a deep look into my own heart. And with the help of others, I've learned that it, at least there's, there's a minimum that, that we've kind of made some agreements with God. There, there's a minimum of at least two things. We've, we've kind of made this agreement with God. But better said, there, there, there's kind of two broad expectations that we have of God. One is that I think most of us expect that God's going to be reasonable with us. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, What it means is that we expect that when a good person does a good thing, they'll get good outcomes, right? I mean, that's reasonable. That when a bad person does bad things, they'll get bad outcomes. That's reasonable, right? And this kind of thinking and this expectation is one of the biggest deterrents people have in coming to faith in Christ and maintaining faith in Christ. It's this thing we theologians call a theodicy or really better describe how can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people, or why does good things happen to bad people? See, we've concluded that God isn't reasonable because we expect God to be reasonable with us. So if you read your Bibles, you've read about Jonah. Jonah has four chapters, and in my opinion, it ends like a bad reality show in which the main character is filled with bitterness, anger, resentment, and disappointment with God. But why is Jonah so bitter and disappointed with God? Because Jonah, after all, is a member of the covenant people of God, but yet God has asked Jonah to share the good news of his mercy and grace with a people who absolutely hate the Israelites. They're known as the Ninevites. They're Assyrians, and the Assyrians are oppressing God's people, and they're extremely wicked and evil. So what does God have the nerve to do to these bad people? He blesses them with his amazing grace. And Jonah is sorely disappointed with God. God, how dare you show kindness to my enemy? Or people who are doing and knowing they're doing the wrong thing. 
God, how can you be kind to those people? You ever been there? Let's go to Job for just a moment. Here's Job whom God, God describes to Satan as being perfect and upright, and he actually recommends that Satan mess with Job. And at that, all the demonic hosts, they go after Job, and, and Job loses his health, his kids, his finances. He loses everything. His friends show up, and for the first seven days, they're doing great, but then they open their mouth, and things go crazy. And the essence of what they say, listen, is, Job, you got to tell us what, what you did, remember, because we expect God to be reasonable to us. So, so, Job, if you've been doing all good, you should expect good things, but you're experiencing bad things, so tell us what you did. Job, there has to be something that you've done. You've had to go against God in some way because you're experiencing bad. And so, so Job, just be honest with us. Tell us what you've done to get this bad stuff because God is reasonable. So, again, I think we have biblical precedent to see that this is not just us, that this is the nature of the human experience, that we expect God to be reasonable with us. So let me show you how this works in real life and not just in our Bible. Let me show you, first of all, how it works in Steve Brown's life, just to be vulnerable with you. I have been super intentional about my family. There hasn't been a day that I haven't poured into and my wife poured into our kids. We've had regular, regular family devotions. We've discipled my kids with incredible diligence. We've taken them on missions. We've surrendered our hearts and, and, and we surrendered to go full-time as missionaries for the kingdom of God. I've given 17 years of my life and education past high school to become a better dad and a better, a better pastor. And we've centered our life on serving the Lord in his church. So shouldn't God be reasonable with me? I mean, my wife and I shouldn't be experiencing today what we are experiencing, right? I mean, God's reasonable, right? Well, what about that young woman? Now, she's not really a part of our church. She just loves Jesus. She grew up in a strong Christian family. She serves God faithfully. She serves her church faithfully. She has a great job, making great money. She's incredibly generous in the things of God, yet every single day she struggles just to get out of bed. She's been diagnosed with clinical depression, and she lives every day just harboring suicidal thoughts. And she's angry and disappointed with God. God, you're just not being reasonable with me. So, so we have that kind of expectation like the people of God did there in Exodus 32. But here's the second one. I told you at least a minimum of two. Here's the other thing. We think and expect God to be available to us. Let me explain that. God, I expect that when I need you right then and there, you're going to do something right then and there that I will never have to wait on you. God, there will never be a delay when I ask that when I ask you for something, you're going to immediately respond. And I really believe that this might be at the heart of the Israelites' disappointment here in our text. I mean, they're following God. They're in the middle of nowhere. They've been serving God faithfully. Now here they are in the middle of nowhere in this wilderness, and God and Moses are not answering their cries right now, and they've waited for 40 days. 
See, God didn't meet their expectation, and now they're disappointed with God. It's kind of like what the sons of Kor said in Psalm 44. Psalm 44, 23, it says, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O God? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? What I want to tell you is, is that's not a safe Christian prayer. I mean, have you ever felt like God just fell asleep on you? It's not that you fell asleep on God during prayer, but God had fallen asleep on you long before you started praying. Like like God just took some time off, like the heavens were closed, like your prayers weren't even being heard. There is no answer, and things are happening that you were praying wouldn't happen. I mean, to be honest, today there's something happening in my family that I have prayed for 29 years would never happen. It seems as if God hasn't heard me. It seems as if God isn't being reasonable or available to me. But here's something that I've learned in this incredibly difficult season of life, and I want to share it with you with the hopes that something I've had to come to to grips with and some jaw-dropping conclusions in my life that could be helpful to you. So no, I'm not telling you something that I haven't worked through, so hear me. But could it be? Could it be that when you and I are disappointed with God, what we may be saying, although we would never say it out loud, although we would never tell anybody else, could we be saying this second point? Disappointment says, God, you have been disobedient to my expectations. Could it be that that's really what we're saying? God, you have been disobedient to me. I think this is one of the things that's at the heart of the disappointment of God. You see, I've been preaching since I was 22, and I've been doing this for a while, but I want you to know that what I'm sharing this morning is not for super spiritual people. That this is not for those who've had your stories turn out great. This is not for you this morning. This is for the people in the room who don't have a good testimony to share as of this morning. This is those people in the room that are begging God not to let them have another miscarriage and they still haven't had a baby. This is for that kind of pain. This is for those who are still heartbroken and are still grieving, devastating loss and haven't gotten to a place of joy. That's whom I'm speaking to you this morning. So let me tell you the third thing this morning. A God who fulfills all your expectations does not exist. A God who fulfills every single one of your expectations does not exist. I want to have a little bit of mature conversation in the room. I was reading this morning in my devotions before I came here. Paul said that he wanted to give them meat, but instead he had to give them milk because they weren't ready. I'm thinking that you've been with me four years. You're ready for some meat, so I'm going to feed you something deep for a second. You okay with that? So remember, here's Israel. They're, They're following God in the middle of nowhere, so let's go back to verse 1. So when the people saw that Moses had laid to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said, hey, come. Make for us a God who will go before us. And as for Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. 
And Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fastened it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Well, let me do some explaining here. That phrase molten calf, or maybe your version says golden calf, after studying this in the original language, I believe it is better translated as young bull. You have to know contextually, this is important because in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, the bull was a symbol of strength, of leadership, and fertility. So think about it. Their God and their leader is missing, so they said, let's replace it with something that can give us strength and leadership and fertility. Let's make for ourselves a bull, a strong young bull. So that leads me to tell you what I have discovered, and that is this, number four, that disappointment triggers idolatry. Disappointment triggers idolatry. Here is a truth that I didn't know existed in my heart. It's been recently revealed to me through lots of hours of praying before God. And here it is. It'll come up on the screen. But when you're disappointed with God, it's then you'll discover the idols that are in your heart. You see, disappointment is like an MRI of the heart. It will reveal to you what you really worship. It'll show you what you really trust in. It will reveal to you what your hopes really are in. But please hear this. The disappointment with God is really good because it reveals that you care about God. If you didn't care about God, it wouldn't matter to you if he disappointed you. Yet at the same time, here's something else I want you to see. When we're trusting God... If he disappoints us, we will turn to idols. So maybe you're a little confused. You're like, what are are you talking about? I don't worship idols. I don't have any statues or wooden replicas or stones built up. I mean, let me give you a simple definition, a simple one of an idol. It's not the only definition, but it is a very simple one, and it's on the screen. An idol is anything that becomes the ultimate thing. An idol is anything that becomes the ultimate thing. I mean, you can make an idol out of anything. It can be your kids. It can be relationships. It can be money, status, followers on social media, movie stars, bands, food, being a mother, being a teacher. You can make an idol out of anything. When anything becomes the ultimate thing, you have an idol on your hand. I mean, think about the timing of all this with the people of God in our text. When God disappoints, it doesn't take but a very short moment for them to turn to an idol. And friends, it doesn't take long in your life either. Some of us in the room and you're listening today, I want you to know that's where you are. That's where I am. It happens like this. Here's how it happens. You might not go out and make a golden calf, but here's how it happens in my experience in real life. Somebody in the room today said, hey, listen, Steve, man, I've been a really good dude. I mean, I've been giving my money to the church. I've been showing up to the church. I've been serving. I've been praying and asking God for for him to give me a girlfriend and somebody that can, can be with me. 
But God hasn't answered me, so I just shrug my shoulders and I say, what's the use? It's not working out for me. I might as well go just hook up with someone. Maybe you're here this morning and it's like this. I've been praying and praying. God, please give me this promotion. You know that my family, we need the money, and you don't get the promotion. And then it feels like God twists the knife and gives it to somebody who could care less about the job, much less the Lord. So you, then you conclude, I might as well do what everybody else does at this company. I'll just cut corners. I'll lie about my overtime. I won't claim this on taxes because integrity doesn't matter anymore. Or maybe you're here this morning and it's like, well, being a good girl ain't working out for me. I've tried to be good so you can forget me coming to this church anymore. So why, why would I bother with God? You see, in my disappointment, I conclude that God doesn't meet my expectations and God isn't available, so I'll just do me. And I'll do what I can manage. Because that's what we do with an idol. Here's how it's been in my head and heart lately. I've been huge on family legacy. I made a decision a long time ago to try to leave a Christ-centered and kingdom-focused family and legacy. I don't know if you've ever paid attention, but I named my children very specifically around the legacy that I was trying to build for the kingdom of God. I've made sure that I walked every man my daughters have married. I walked with them for over a year to make sure that they knew the family legacy we were trying to build and that they were going to join me in that legacy. Yet as of this morning, that legacy is incredible jeopardy, and I am incredibly disappointed in that. In that journey over the past three weeks, I haven't wanted a single thing to do with my family. See how quickly we turn to idols? See how quickly we turn? So God began to show me Maybe God begins to show you that whatever that legacy, whatever that thing that you're looking at, maybe he's showing you that you have an idol. And, and the thing that, listen, anything that, that, that becomes the ultimate thing now is, is the idol. And God was showing me that, Steve, you put faith in your family legacy. What if I have a different legacy? So disappointment triggers idolatry, and that leads to the next thing, and that is this. That when God shows us our idols, we have to let them go. Look in verse 5. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at what? <laughs> For your people whom brought you up of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. Let me put this to you in my thinking, in my language. Let me paraphrase that differently. 
heard of somebody who moved from California and they moved to another state. And while they were in California, they had this modest little home and they were trying to sell it in order to move. And they met with their real estate agent and the agent walks through their home. And at the end of the walkthrough, the agent sits them down and says this. He says, hey, have you guys ever considered staging your home? They were like, "Mm, no. Why would we do something like that? And the agent said these words, because your furniture is atrocious. And if you want to sell your house, that stuff has to go. Basically, she said, we can't move forward until you get that stuff out. I'm telling you, that's what the Lord says. When he does the walkthrough, when you become disappointed and you turn to an idol, he sees it at once and he comes down and he says, listen, if we're going to move forward, that atrocious stuff has to go. See, here's the thing. It'd be on the screen. But when you're disappointed, You can't move forward until you let go of the idols. You see, when I'm disappointed, I usually have two, one of two reactions, and I get to choose how I respond to disappointment. And I'm going to tell it to you like this. I summarize it this way. I can choose the way of idolatry, or I can choose the way of intimacy. This is, my friends, what it's been about the whole, the whole time from the very beginning. And that leads me to show you this sixth thing, and that is this, that disappointment is an opportunity to exercise faith. Pick up with me in verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have what corrupted themselves. Did y'all see that? And they have turned quickly aside from the way, there it is, the way which I commanded them. In other words, they stopped walking by faith in the direction God told them to go. Now, as I was preparing this week, I came across this this concept that the longest narratives in the Bible, the longest stories in the Bible, they all have exactly the same two plots. And you can summarize it this way. The longest stories, the, 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 the stories the Scripture gives the most pages to, here are the two big plots. Someone experiences incredibly deep disappointment, and then they're given an opportunity to exercise incredibly deep faith. That is the story of the Bible, friends. I mean, Abraham and Sarah. For decades, they've struggled for infertility and experienced deep disappointment, but yet God shows up to them and says, hey, listen, will you believe me for a son? They stumble along the way. They make some choices that they shouldn't, but they have to exercise deep faith and believe that they're going to receive what God's promised to them. They experienced deep disappointment, which led to exercising deep faith, and they had a baby, and now you and I can say, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had father Abraham, I am one of them. What if they never experienced the faith? What if they only held on to their disappointment? 
What about Joseph? We meet him at what scholars tell us is the age of 17, and it's disappointment after disappointment in Joseph's life. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's lied on and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He experiences deep disappointment when he's forgotten about in jail. They're supposed to give word to the king for him, but they don't. Yet he had to exercise deep faith by holding on to the promise that God had given him. And then in the end, he can say, well, what you meant for evil... God did what? God meant for good. What about David? From the time he's anointed king until he sits on the throne, he experiences one deep disappointment after another, but he had to exercise deep faith not to kill the Lord's anointed and trust that God would make him king. And he did, and David received the blessings of God. You see, this is the story, experiencing deep disappointment, which leads to you having to exercise deep faith. It's amazing to me how many times I think I get to skip out on what every other Bible character had to go through. Now listen, I'm not a mathematician by any stretch. I like math, I enjoy it, but I am not really good at it. But when I was in high school, when I'm going to date myself here just a little bit, I came across this amazing, this amazing invention called Texas Instruments Calculator. That thing was like this regular little solar-powered calculator that I had. It was like that on major steroids. This thing was awesome. I mean, you just plugged in the problem and out came the solution. Plug in the problem and out came the solution. I mean, it was quick. It was so fast. It was amazing. But then the craziest thing of all crazy things happened in my life. My teacher, she stood up in the front of the room and she said, listen, you can use the Texas Instruments calculator to make sure that you have the correct answer. But you must do what? Show your work. Well, then why do we have calculators? I'm very confused. She said, you have to show step by step how you've came to the answer. So then I'm going to date myself even a little more. I took out my trapper keeper. <laughs> Y'all remember those? Mm-hmm, I took that bad boy out. And I got out some college ruled line loose leaf paper. And I began the slow, arduous process of showing I had no idea what was happening in the class. See, my teacher knew something that I didn't know. She knew that growth and learning never happens quickly. That leads me to say this to you. Faith is developed in the pain of working through the problem of disappointment. Faith, my friends, is developed in the pain of working through the problem of disappointment. See, my faith and my growth in Christ never happens quickly. It always happens in a long process. And you may experience the trial and error of working through the problem of disappointment, but know this, please hear that. If you don't hear anything else I say, can you just know this, that God, God is more interested in growing your faith and fulfilling your expectations.
God is more interested in growing your faith than fulfilling your expectations. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So he says in verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God's always about your faith, and I promise you he will build your faith through blowing up your expectations. Albert Tate, he's a a writer that you may not know, but he writes it this way. He says, strong faith comes from deep rejection, painful losses, doubt, discomfort, my word, disappointment, and suffering. Let me show you what this really means. If we always did good and experienced good, we wouldn't increase our faith but our performance. If the only thing we did was good and then experienced good, then we would learn how to perform a whole lot better. We would not be about our faith. And God is not interested in your performance. Also, if God always immediately responded to you, we wouldn't increase our faith but our requests. you would just learn that God is a vending machine and that if you just put in whatever you want to put in, that you push the button and immediately something's going to come out. So you would just spend more time asking God for stuff. You wouldn't learn to trust him. I mean, if we could just insert this prayer, this desire, this request, if we could just work hard enough, if we could just do all the right things and just do, do good things and immediately get good things, we would work really hard at getting what we expect out of our vending machine God. But God is not about giving you a product. He's about producing a product in you called faith. And here's the good news, and I need you to know there is good news, that God can and will use your disappointment to bless you. Because when he's done growing your faith, that's when you can please him, and that's when he will bless you. That's what happened with the people of God. God uses everything, even our disappointments, as a part of his sovereign plan, so that means that you and I can really trust the Lord. That's what I'm trying to tell you. We can truly trust him because this eighth point is this, that freedom comes when we surrender our expectations and submit to what he's already expressed. Freedom in your disappointment comes when you surrender your expectations and just submit to what God has expressed. Look there in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they're an obstinate people. Then let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I may make you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you've brought from the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning air and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember, O God, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land which I have spoken. I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. 
Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain and with the tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets were written on both sides. They were written one side or the other. The tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing engraved, engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. This is so interesting to me. I'm running out of time, so let me say it this way. God's word says that they were an obstinate, maybe your Bible says stiff-necked, and that's the better translation, people. That's a farming metaphor. It's used of a horse or an ox that had a rope tied around its neck, and the farmer would give a, a gentle tug, and it's supposed to elicit the response of submission. But instead, the horse or that ox, it digs in, it resists and rebels, and that's what they called being stiff-necked. God says, I'm trying to lead these people to get into the promised land. I'm trying to lead these people to the way of blessing, and I'm gently pulling them, but they resist me. They dig in. They are stiff-necked. And later on in the narrative, after he sees that the people have not submitted to God and his word, Moses takes those same tablets and he breaks them. In Exodus 32, 19, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, that he saw the calf and he saw the dancing and Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Why is that important? Because friends, the tablets represented rules and regulations by which we can only have a relationship with God. It is symbolic that when Moses breaks those tablets, Moses is saying to Israel, Israel, you have broken your relationship with God. So do you see it? And this is what we've been building up to. Let's just put it together. Moses, go get your people. They're stiff-necked. They've broken relationship. They haven't submitted to me and my word, and now they're disappointed in me. Do you see it? They haven't done what I've asked them to do, and they're disappointed with me. I don't know if you've paid attention, but this is, this is where we've been headed. I haven't met their expectations. I supposedly haven't been available to them. Yet in their relationship with me, they act like they're the only ones that are disappointed. You know, in marriage counseling, a spouse comes in and, and they start the list of things that the other one has done or not has done, and they just start complaining. And it never ceases to amaze me what happens when the other spouse breaks out their list too. The look on their face is almost, it's unbelievable it's, because it's humbling to realize that you're not the only one in the relationship with a disappointment. So then let me turn these two expectations we have of God back around on us. Have we always been reasonable with God? I mean, it's very true that we don't work for our salvation. It's by grace and grace alone that we're saved. Yet God says that I expect you to submit to me and obey me because I gave my only son to forgive you. He paid for our salvation. So then isn't it reasonable that God expects us to just submit to him no matter what he does? Have we always been available to God? I mean, do we constantly sit and listen for his voice and act immediately when he speaks? Have we prayed like we should, studied like we should, witnessed like we should, have we served like we should, exactly when and always at the same time we hear from God? So then maybe I should ask this, why then are we willing to kick God to the curb 
when we aren't even willing to do what we're expecting God to do. So God says, I'm just going to blot them out. I'm going to kill everybody. The Bible says that Moses tried to intercede and make atonement. So he says there in verse 13, he says, remember, God, remember Abraham and Isaac, your servants to whom you swore to yourself and said to them, I'll multiply as the stars of heaven, this land which I've spoken, I'm going to give it to them and they shall inherit it forever. What is happening is here, I don't know if you've caught it, but this is a you said kind of prayer. Moses is reminding God of the promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac, and, and, and namely Israel. He's holding God to his promise. He's praying a you said prayer. So listen, here's what I've learned this week. When you are disappointed, Moses teaches me and teaches you to pray some you said prayers based on the promises of God, because that's what I can expect from God. I can expect God to always be faithful to his promises. That's what I can expect. So then that's how I submit to what he's already expressed. I just put my faith and my obedience in the promises of God. Prayers like this, Isaiah 26, 3, the steadfast of mine, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So Lord, you said, you said that if I trust in you, you will keep me in peace, not just in peace, but in perfect peace. So Lord, I'm begging you today to give me the peace when I'm disappointed. What about this, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God calls us all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Father, 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 you said, you said that you would work this all out for my good. Please, my God, work this out for my good. So when you're disappointed, join me in praying some you said prayers. Moses is like, God, if you kill the people, then we'll be the laughingstock of the nations. You have to call, you, you, you called us, God, you called us to be a light to the nations. We can't be the light if it's lights out. You see, the book of Exodus is about the sovereignty of God and submission to him. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about a God who's in control. It began with all the baby boys being killed, then God sovereignly protecting Moses, and then sovereignly placing him in the family of Pharaoh. Moses had nothing but ends up with everything. And we see in the sovereignty of God, his sovereign care for his people by sending those 10 plagues to get them out of bondage. What I'm trying to say is, is you can surrender your expectations through the sovereignty of God. Because why? A sovereign God will even use your disappointment for his glory and your good because you can trust a God who is in control. I mean, imagine just for a moment that I had two grandsons. Just imagine that those grandsons were named Benjamin and Stephen. And let's just make up some ages because this isn't their ages, but let's just pretend that one of them was six-year-old and one of them was two-year-old, and I wanted to take them to the barber, and I found the best barber in the state of Texas. And let's just say that, that one haircut, after sitting down at the barber, one haircut looked like a work of art, and the other looked like a really bad experiment. I mean, one was cut incredibly smooth. It was blended, perfectly cut every hair, just perfectly cut. And the other had bald spots, clumps of hair everywhere, hairs of all different lengths. I mean, you could probably by this point imagine why if you paid attention to the story. And that would be that because one sat perfectly still, he turned when he was told to turn, he lowered his head when he was told to lower it, etc. But the other grandson, well... He couldn't sit still. He would jerk all over the place, constantly trying to get up, moving, jerking, laughing, playing. So then 
I need you to work with me here. But at the end of the day, the haircuts would never be a reflection of the skill of the barber. But they're going to be a reflection of the submission or lack of of my grandsons. So let me put this on the screen. Friends, the quality of your life doesn't so much reflect the skill of God, but it does reflect your submission to or lack of submission to what God has already expressed in His Word. If your life is jacked up, it is not because of God. See, when I'm disappointed, when I don't hear him, when I don't see him, and I'm confused by him, will I simply do what Psalm 46.10 says? Will I simply just be still and know that he is God? Will I keep putting one foot in front of the other and saying, God, you said. God, I'm disappointed, but you said. That leads me to the last thing, and I know you're disappointed I didn't let you out earlier, but I'm promising you I'm going to let you go soon. Jesus is the answer for our disappointment. In verses 30 and 32, we see that Moses tries to make atonement for the people. Verse 30, on the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses said to God, hey, blot out my name. I'm here to make atonement with my blood. Kill me to save them. But centuries later, you know this. God says, someone who will come who is a true and better Moses. And Jesus would come and experience the death we should die because of our sins. And Jesus would be blotted out so that we could be written in. And Jesus Christ says, I will die in their place. I will take on their sins. You see, this is why the gospel is the most reasonable thing of all. It's so reasonable because God says, I will take your rebellion for my perfection. I'll take your transgression for my righteousness. That is reasonable. You want to talk about availability? When you get saved, God says, I'm going to step inside of you through the person of the Holy Spirit who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, and who will be with you always. That is why Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So whether you know it or not, every single day through the gospel, God fulfills his expectations of what's reasonable, and he always gives you his availability through the Holy Spirit. So remember Ethel? She leaves the church in 1908 because of incredible disappointment, but in 1957, she happens to be in New York City and a tall, lanky preacher by the name of Billy Graham shows up. And during that crusade, Ethel surrenders her life and rededicates her life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus began to take her disappointment away. The last 20 years of Ethel's life, you wouldn't find her singing the blues. You would find her singing a song written six years before she was disappointed. It goes like this. Why should I feel discouraged? 
Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. And his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. You can find Ethel in those days testifying to a very good God because she just showed up and let Jesus do the rest. So, Nathan and those who will be playing, would you come and would you just begin to play some music? I don't want you to sing. I just want you to play. Because church, as your pastor this morning, I want to pray for you and I want to tell you something that I've learned doing this all these years. Sometimes you hear the word of God and you want to put it on layaway. You say, you know what, God, that's good, but, but I, want to, I want to do that later. But sometimes you know it's a good word and you have to do something right now. So listen, I believe that there's somebody here today and you're disappointed like me. And as your pastor, I just want to pray for you. So if you're here this morning and you would say, man, I've got some disappointment in my life, I'm not going to ask you to come tell me what it is. I just simply want to pray for you. So right now, if, if that's you, if you've got some disappointment like me, would you be willing right now just to stand to your feet and let me pray over you? If you've got any disappointment in your life, would you just stand and let me pray over you? I see you. And I care deeply about you, church. And I'm thankful that we get to walk in brokenness together. Now listen, you see who's around you, so now I wonder would the rest of you stand and draw near to some of these who are standing? And could we pray together over those who may be experiencing disappointment? Let me, let me pray as you maybe place your hand on that, that beloved one's shoulder. And would you pray for them as I pray for them? Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for my brothers and my sisters who are standing right now, and by their standing, it's an admission that they are experiencing disappointment. And I pray for them right now that you would strengthen them to continue to put one foot in front of the other, to walk by faith and not by sight. I pray that you would show up, Lord God, in their lives and that you, you would graciously, kindly deal with their idols. But Lord, that you would show them Jesus and the promises of God, that your Holy Spirit would speak your promises to them and over them and remind them of how much you love them. God, would you give them joy in this season of disappointment? Would the joy of the Lord be their strength as they walk this painful path? 
Father, today I beg you to remind them that great is your faithfulness. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are here today and you've never received the Lord Jesus, if you don't know anything about that, but today you're strangely aware that you need him, as we sing this song, I will be here waiting for you. There'll be some others that are going to come. But I wonder, can we all just join together and confess what we know is true? We may have great disappointments, but we have a God who's great in his faithfulness. Let's sing together. You come.